By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf, and as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we have a good friend of the show who we've been wanting to have him on for a long time. And he's usually used to interviewing other people as a broadcaster and fellow podcaster. But we're going to switch scripts today. We've got our good buddy, Mark Emmelman. Mark, welcome to the sweet spot. Thank you, John. Nice to see you and Adam. Yeah, I'm realizing what's going on here. You have flipped the scripts because I've had you guys on my show to make me way more popular. <laughs> But I'm realizing you're going to the more important folks before you got me on. Is that what's going on here or what? Not at all. I think it just reveals the fact that before we hit the record button, I was telling you we don't record video. I think it just <laughs> reveals how low budget and low strategy this show is where we're just kind of shooting from the hip all the time. And I think on multiple episodes, we're like, oh, we got to get Mark on here. And we just never did it. Plus, to my defense... I'm always worried because since you're a pro golf broadcaster, you're like on the road all the time and you're always interviewing people on your podcast. You have like 7,000 episodes. So I've been worried to ask you because you're so damn busy. Oh, stop. Here's the thing about you two, because you're two of the brightest minds in the game. You don't need high tech. You just bring your brains and that's enough. And so I'm, ha I'm happy to join <laughs> the two of you. Well, We're running out of stuff, Mark. We're running out of brain juice. <laughs> we've so lost, we're we're out of ideas. <laughs> we know we'll get some good stuff from you. There's only so many new things under the sun, right? I mean, in the this end, I guess yeah. we're going to get right back to what you teach all day long, all the time, and what John writes about in books. I mean, there's only so many ways you can package it, correct? Back yeah. to the basics. Yeah. So. And just to thank you, Mark, I wanted to say this in a public forum. You had me on your show, I think, like months after I started doing what I was doing, probably in like 2015. And at that point, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I remember you had me on, you saw probably like a tweet I sent out and you invite me on your show. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, if this guy is taking notice of what I'm doing, <laughs> then I must be onto something. So I have to thank you. you. You gave me a really important vote of confidence early on. I don't think if I got 
a vote of confidence from someone like you or someone like Andrew Rice, I've said this to, I might have stopped. So I do want to thank you for giving me a platform in the earlier days on your podcast, On The Mark. Oh, honestly, John, it was my pleasure. Look, my goal with my podcast is to introduce bright minds to the world because as a young man growing up in South Africa, all I learned was what I learned in magazines. And we always got them like a month late because they were taking so long to get to where we were. And we had golf professionals over there, but I just feel for people around the world that don't have access to just like, like go and drive and go and see uh, Adam Young or someone. So I wanted to introduce Bright Minds to the world. And, and then by the same token, you know, I was a pretty good young golf instructor when I came up, but I was never, ever going to be on the cover of a magazine. And so as a result, I, I, back then, I didn't feel like I was ever really going to make a splash unless something miraculous happened. And now all of a sudden, I had this podcast where I could, could achieve both ends, help people around the world and help people to meet you know, their heroes and, uh, and the folks they'd like to take a lesson from. And then by the same token, flash big spotlights on someone like an Adam <laughs> Young or John Sherman because it was what, what I missed. And so it was, my, it was my thrill, honestly, to get you on. Well, thank you. And I think a lot of our listeners do absolutely listen to On The Mark. If you haven't listened to On The Mark, I think you've got like you're incredibly prodigious on that show. I think you have over 300 episodes at this point. You have better access than we do because you're on tour all, all the time. So you can get much better guests than we can. But he has quite the library. Let's talk about you. Mm-hmm. You're always talking about other people. I think you have a really cool story and a really cool perspective based on your journey through golf. I think I kind of know the basics. You grew up in South Africa. I think you played a bit with Ernie and Retief mm-hmm. and those guys. You were pretty damn good. You came to the States and you played really well in college. You've had an awesome coaching career, broadcasting career. Tell us a little bit about your journey through the game. It was basically that. Uh, I got into golf accidentally. I was your typical young South African kid. I have a younger brother who's won the Masters, among other things, and he's nine years my junior. And as a 12-year-old, I broke my arm pretty badly in rugby, which was like one of our main sports down there. And I'll never forget I had to go in for surgery to get it fixed. And I remember lying on the gurney to go into the theater. And my coach showed up and he said to my parents, look, you know, all the best. And then he looked at them. And I remember in my groggy state, because I was halfway sedated, he was like, look, Mark's good, but he's too small to play rugby. <laughs> you got to find something else. I <laughs> was me as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know how it is, right? And so, DJ, and then as I came out of that, you know, once I was out of the plaster cast on my arm back in the day, it was one Saturday morning and friends of mine were going down to the golf course and they're like, come, we're going. And I was like, sure. I'm left-handed, incidentally. So I said to my dad, I'm going to play golf. And he goes, well, fine. Your granddad set of golf clubs are in the garage. But the problem was they were right-handed. And so that was that. I went to the golf course, I guess the proverbial bug bit. And, and since then, it's just been the most incredible serendipitous ride one could ever imagine. Like I was your typical kid who wanted to play on the tour. And I got pretty good. But then all of a sudden, you know, as I ascended up the ranks in South Africa, <laughs> they were from... We South Africa is divided into provinces back then, and and I was from the Cape, and both Ernie and Retief, Hall of Famers, were from the northern province, Transvaal. And I encountered them in a tournament, and all of a sudden I realized, well, it's going to be hard to be the best golfer in the world right now. And then, add insult to injury, my nine-year, my junior brother started to get really good. And after coming back from 
was in college and I had a pretty good year. I'd won a few times and was in all America. I got home and I got waxed by my 15 year old brother, what was 13 year old brother, whatever he was at the time. You're an all American collegiate golfer. Yeah. Yes. And then Trevor waxed you as a 15 year old. We had, so I don't know. I, I've got to finish <laughs> the story because okay, look, we didn't get the best of stuff. And Trevor was a, you know, hotshot junior and, you know, he had some cool <laughs> things, but I got home with some really cool baseball hats. Right. And I, ca- I got off the plane and he's like, I want that hat. I'm like, over my dead body, are you getting this hat? <laughs> so he worked on me. So I said, okay, I'll play you for it. 18 holes. And I will never, ever forget. So I'm wearing the hat in the game and I've got Trevor down with a couple of holes to play. And he claws his way back to all square. And we're going up the last at my home club there. And it's a longish par four dog leg to the right. And I had it sort of on the edge of the green make four. And he's got one from about maybe just inside of 20 feet for birdie to put me by one. And he hits this putt and the thing's three quarters of the way there. I'm like, it, it's got one destination, right? And it goes <laughs> into the, I mean, it disappears into the hole like a homesick mole. And he looks up at me and he goes, and he walks over to me and I gave him the hat and the rest was history. I became a golf teacher on the spot. <laughs> when you came across Retief and Ernie and even watching your brother's evolution, I've seen this. It's I don't think we've defined it yet in science, but like, you know, when someone's got quote unquote it, Mm -hmm. like, what did you see? And you're around the pro game all the time now, and you coach still, and you're seeing golfers who either have it for that level or don't. Is there anything you noticed playing with those guys when they were younger or against, and, and you were really good yourself, but like, what do you think was the difference? Can you put your finger on it? It's kind of all of the above, but I will say with guys like Goose and Ernie, just the way the ball was hit. You know, I grew up, I was a junior golfer and I was a senior in high school in 1988. So, you know, this is the late 80s. And, you know, we're playing with persimmon drivers and old spinny golf balls. And these guys would launch these golf balls and they would go forever. And they just had the entire package. And it always seemed like the game came so easy to them, to all of them. And whereas I would be working my rear end off, it looked like these guys fell out of bed hitting the ball solidly. <laughs> Must be nice. Yeah, and, and that was sort of the thing, John. It's like you kind of just get a sense. The sound of the shot, the flat of the ball, the ease with which they do it. It's like it just comes, dare I say, naturally. Now, look, I was a good golfer, but but I always looked up at this and going, golly, I could probably – my claim to fame, if there is one, was I happened to beat Ernie head-to-head in a match play game like once. Nice. Yeah. I mean, so I'm going to hang my hat on that thing. But otherwise, it was just, it's a different thing. And it's just everything they do is just so much greater. But the way the balls hit is differently. Do you think that art has been a little lost with modern equipment? You know, the, <laughs> where you go? When I, th- yeah, when I think about it, the, oh no, I, I haven't even thought I'm about kidding. the, the rollback or anything like that. But talking about persimmon woods and things, and I watch my eighteen handicap playing partners strike it all over the face and blast it out there as far as me, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking if I if we went back. God, how how long ago is it now? Thirty years to when I started playing and had these really tiny heads that they would just not get it anywhere. They'd be skying it, topping it, towing it, and you know not hitting it out there two fifty, two sixty, two eighty. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that art has been lost with with the modern equipment. You can just get it and lash it now. 
I would agree with that too. And, and I'd go a little further. Maybe I'm sounding like Gary Player a bit now. You know, back when we were playing, golf course agronomy wasn't as good. Now, look, I know folks listening to this might not be playing on the most luxurious of places. But, you know, when you're playing with a spinny ball and the fairways aren't so great, and then you've got to hoist something 200 yards over water with a three iron that looks like it's the size of a butter knife in your hand, you grow the ability to make smart decisions very fast. To me, back with that equipment, as you well know, golf was more verse unless you were an Ernie else, than anything else. When nowadays with these balls that go so far and the equipment that hoists the stuff off the ground so quickly, you know, most golfers will stand and go, all right, I'm just going to rip my forearm because it's going to get in the air somehow. But back in the day, you got a hurting left to right wind off a tight lie with a blade three iron. <laughs> Good luck. You know, so, <laughs> so I feel like it's the game right now and in in the game I call on the PGA Tour is, look, I'm seeing the guys who, the best of the best who are playing the best on the weekends because they're near the lead of the tournament. But it's just like send. It's all systems go. And there is some course management involved, but the course management nowadays is just blast the thing as far as you can and then play again. Where then I go and I have the luxury of calling up a Nick Price and then he starts ranting about, you know, that's the art of the game is being lost, which it kind of is to your point. But but still, you know, we Everything evolves. Tennis, golf, gymnastics, you name it. You know, the four-minute mile. I'm just bitter. Remember when the four-minute mile was a thing? (laughs) Yeah. It is what it is, and it's fun to be a part of, but but you're right. If if I had hybrid clubs back when I was playing golf, you may not be interviewing me right now. (laughs) I don't think. I'm just bitter because I uh, I don't hit it very far. So I watch those guys fly at 3.30 in the air and I have no capability of doing that. So yeah, I'm like, bring back the persimmons. I'm going to say this now and my boss will probably cringe. But there are so many times, like if I've got a McElroy or a, any one of those guys and I get this, the club signal, look, the tee shots are biblical. You know, when Rory hits one, the way it goes, it's like, it's miraculous. But then when I glance over... And I'm waiting for a club signal from 200 yards. And the dude's got like eight iron in his hand. I'm like, eight. I'm like, holy, <laughs> it's taking everything in my power not to go, holy, you know. <laughs> I'm like, well, McElroy has eight iron from 205. You know, it's, it's, it's great. It's crazy to watch these guys adrenalized when they're at the best. It's nuts. So take us through your, you transitioned to coaching, you know, not too long after you, you stopped playing in college. What was that like in your earlier days in coaching? Talk a little bit about that. I know you were on the, the European tour. You worked with your brother. You worked at the highest level of the game. What was that like? I break it up. You know, there's coaching, which what I did when I was a college coach for like 20 seasons. And then there was instruction. And I would sort of always have called myself a coach because I was more about the playing of the game. So as I look back on it and, and I sort of answer your question, you know, stepping away from the playing was not that big a deal for me because as I look back, I'd always been more into the technique and the how of the game. Like I truly love golf. And my dad then, after I'd started teaching full-time, said to me, he goes, do you know that when you were a kid, you came and told us that you wanted to be a teacher one day? So the beauty about that all was that I got to basically marry what maybe my purpose was with my passion. And I was always the ferocious book reader. And I've You know, that's how I learned the game. I didn't have a coach. I just read every book I could find. I think the transition was easy, but it always sort of made me a little different as an instructor or a coach. 
because I knew all the technique stuff, but also had the luxury of having played at a pretty high level. And I understood that, you know, when you're coming down the stretch on the 17th hole and you've got a tight lie over water, you know, all the technique in the world is not doing any favors. Then you've got to figure out a way. And so it was a funny transition. It came easy, I think, because I was working with my brother full time. I didn't have much time to think about it all. You know, just because of him, I was thrust kind of into the highest level of the game very quickly. So I remember as a teacher then being bold in what I knew, very cautious in how I delivered it. Because always in the back of my mind, I I knew that the only thing I can really do is screw up talent. And I don't want to do that because when you're working with elites, they're good. And so what you've got to enhance and hone what they do. So I, I was bold in my belief system. And thankfully, I got proved right with the advent of the launch monitor. Then, well, I did have a lesson one time with John Jacobs that helped. (laughs) (laughs) But I was very cautious in how I delivered the stuff. And because as a big brother and a son of a father and all the sort of stuff working with Trevor and then some other European tour guys, I could only really fail if you really think about it, you know, if I said something or did something wrong. So I I was always trying to be cautious and, and always making sure that I knew what I knew and I wasn't afraid to say, I don't know, because I wasn't just going to take a guess, if, if that made sense to you. And what was the nature of the relationship with Trevor, like in the sense that, you know, he is your little brother and you're obviously going to be protective of him and he's got this career ambition and you're his coach as well. Was that family business is tough. <laughs> so I don't want you to share things you don't want to share. But what was that like him being your pupil and your brother at the same time? I had no doubts that Trevor was going to win big events. I had no doubt whatsoever. Maybe it was infantile at the time, but he just had that. You know, he was the guy that when he needed to make a 10-foot putt, it was being made. He was the guy that when he needed to hit a shot, he was going to do it, which was something I never really had. You know, if I had the 10-footer that had to be made, I'd probably not make it. But still, there was a responsibility to it that at the time, I think I was just young enough and maybe ignorant enough to overlook. But I was not just coaching, I was caddying as well. So a lot of the time, my head was filled with yardages and things like that. So maybe it was all just very fortunate at the time that I didn't really think about it because I think if I did, maybe I would have been even more cautious than what I was. So it was an incredible time, you know, looking back on it. You know, he has two brothers traveling around the European tour. You know, he was just making his way out and he got these starts and he made a few cuts and missed a few cuts. and. Then he went to the Challenge Tour, and then I started teaching full-time, and he went around on his own some. But then to watch him make it through the Challenge Tour onto the European Tour, and then that's when I got the college coaching job. Then we split some, but we still sort of worked, and I use that loosely, from long distance. But to watch him then just go from strength to strength was a thrill. Yeah, there's probably a point where you're glad you didn't have a certain amount of knowledge at that time. (laughs) You could probably do some damage, right? Especially there's so much information floating around now that it would be easy to, you know, oh, let's try this theory, let's let's try that theory. Whereas the dearth of information back then probably helped in a way. There's kind of this curve where we get lots and lots of knowledge and we want to try everything. And then you get to the point where you get loads of knowledge, even more, and you start to try less because you're like, okay, I really understand the situation here, especially as you were talking about with tour players. Your observation is so keen, Adam, and it's the one thing I respect about you is that, you know, there's knowledgeable and there's wise, and you're wise. And looking back, I think maybe by accident, I was wise, 
because on every tour in the world, the golfers have ears like radars and eyes on stocks because they're looking to see who's playing well and what's that person doing. And I don't want to say I was blissfully immune to it, but I always be paying attention. But I knew what I knew, if that makes sense to you. And I knew that, yeah, Trevor might hit a trapped fade, but he does this every single time. Because when I graded a golf, when I still grade a golf swing, I look for three things. I look for is the contact square to produce a desired flight. Does it repeat under pressure? And is there leverage, maximum speed for minimum effort? And if he was doing that and he was doing it under pressure, we were kind of winning. But it is so easy to get trapped in all this information. But that's where the wisdom comes in to kind of know who you are, know what your habits are. And now I sound like I'm reading a John Sherman book back to you because that's what John started to highlight to players like, look, you might not be able to do what Ernie else does. It might look cool and sexy, but you've got to be you. I think at the time, then I kind of knew that in my soul. It was my guiding light at the time. So as this is always a question we'd love to ask people who've been through the big changes over the last 20 years in technology and diagnostic tools like launch monitors, and you've coached and instructed through it all, has the extra information and the technology dramatically changed the methods you use to teach golfers or has it you just peppered in some things that you always knew and now you can verify <laughs> like what has i know you're not against technology no. i've seen you working with launch monitors but i'm always curious to hear this from people who've been through different ranks of the game like you have i'm gonna sound like adam and be a bit bitter right now <laughs> i uh, the technology hasn't really changed how i teach it's just another way to communicate with people for me because the learner, look, my message is only as good as what it's understood. And the learner is either visual or auditory or sensory. Certain folks, if they're really sensory beings, and a lot of us are, you know, tactile with feel, then if you can show them numbers and say, look, you think you're doing it, but you're not doing it just yet. It helps you to push them down that path of unsurety a little easier. Because to me, by definition, every golf lesson taken is like it's a transaction, right? The learner wants to get better. The teacher wants to help said learner get better and make some money. But the learner is stuck is on first base. He wants to or she wants to get to second, but there's some safety in first base. So to get them to leave first base with both feet and start going is part of the challenge. And that's where the commitment, the buy-in and stuff helps. So with the use of something like a body track mat or a hack motion wrist sensor or a, a flight scope launch monitor, all the stuff that I use, it just helps that transaction a bit more because you're like, well, look, you might think your wrist is flexed through contact, but hack motion is disagreeing with you. You might see or feel the ball going a bit better, but you can still advance. So to me, it just helps the golfers advance down the way. Now, it has proved some stuff, especially the to, to me, the ground reaction stuff, you know, how ground is used, they can quantify, people can quantify this a whole lot better. And that's been helpful. But kind of, I'm like, Adam, you know, you can see when a swing just doesn't look right. And you can see when legs look soupy underneath one. And you can see how that would affect the swing path and the angle of attack and stuff. And so now with the pressure mapping, you can show folks that, you know, you don't slide toward the target as long as you think you should. You're actually backing up through contact to sling the club. So so that sort of helped in communication. But in the end, to your question, I think it hasn't changed what I do. It's just helped me to convince folks a little bit more. My story on that with regards launch monitors, you know, even 
going back pre-launch monitor, I knew what the path had to do yeah. to produce mm -hmm. a certain shape. And I was always a big drawer of the golf ball. And I knew my path was too much in to out. But it was only when I got on a track man and tried to make my path neutral that I felt the huge disconnect between feel and real. You know, mm -hmm. to make the path anywhere close to zero felt like I was jamming the club into my left leg through impact. Yeah. Obviously, that feeling got went away as I practiced more with it and got more comfortable. But yeah, that initial catalyst to make the change was probably wouldn't have been done without the launch monitor just because it felt so alien to me at the time but don't you think that we're a product of our environment because i'm guessing you grew up in windy conditions so the entire path the shutting face helped you to turn the thing down through the wind a little bit more you know it's we all the product of environment there's sort of that nature versus nurture thing and you're right that's where that stuff comes in but then i hearken back to john jacobs you know this man his book, Practical Golf, guided me as a young teacher. And I stood there and I watched him give a lesson where he wasn't even watching the golfer in front of him. He just turned around and watched the golf ball. And all he would say was like, how did you hit that? Was it flush? Was it in the toe? And he straightened off the ball flight just by understanding those, those relationships, those ball flight dynamics you speak of. And it's this beautiful organization where they're working from the ball back into the club, back into the human being, where I'm watching so many golfers trying to go the other way around and then manhandle the club face through contact or whatever to try and produce whatever they're looking for at contact. So you're right. I mean, back in the day, we just learned by shaping balls. Nowadays, you learn by getting more feedback. So I think it makes the learning experience probably a little more, a little less mundane and probably a little faster, John. And it probably, my guess is, is it has, maybe this is something you could be bitter about as well, but <laughs> it's brought more opportunity for other people to access the instructional skill, right? Because before you couldn't quantify it and the eye had to be trained, like you said, John Jacobs, like that was a skill he had that probably not many others had. But now with all this technology, there's greater access. I think that's better for golfers overall to get to the better, more true information. But it also kind of similar to what we were talking about with equipment, right? When you had persimmon and the spinny ball, it kind of separated the field a bit more. And it's no different with the technology and teaching as well. But I, overall, I would think that's still a good thing because it helps the golfer more. It is definitely a good thing because golfers around the world are playing the game better because the game is hard but i will say this and i'm sure adam would agree all those launch monitor numbers the data that you see they work in concert with each other and you can't just look at a guy and say well your path is nine degrees to the left and then you just hit the path thing because you know there's other things that are happening to create the ball flat and so that to me is where the wisdom of knowing okay how do these relationships work and then what is causing this stuff because like Adam says, I mean, I could say, well, you'll pass inside out nine and put a big two by four outside of the golf ball. Yeah, I could just aim you more left and you'd have a more zero path, but you'd still probably be seeing a lot of the shots that you're seeing. So, so it's the wisdom of knowing what to do with the golfer then to help change those numbers as opposed to just manually trying to make something happen by maybe shutting the club face more through contact or whatever, if that makes sense. And understanding how the numbers relate as well. You know, if you see an angle of attack yeah. that's shallow on a path that's to the right, what do you do? You know, swing in more to the left will move the angle of attack steeper as well. Amen. And then, you know, sometimes taking three or four numbers and being able to say, how can I make all of those move in the right direction with this one feel cue for that player? Absolutely. It's like it's like geometry. And, and, and that's where 
I get to talk to all of you bright minds, and that's where the good ones, through it all, it's like I learned from David Ledbetter a lot. He goes, in the end, it's just communication, understanding and communication, and that's where the bright minds understand how to get the end built as opposed to just, well, I'm going to tape here and fix there and do this. And next thing, poor golfer in front of you is doing like 15 different things to try and change a number that they're seeing on a computer screen. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness, which is the last thing you want when you're playing golf. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It's used by Olympians, professional athletes, special forces like the Navy SEALs, health experts, and for people like you and me who just want to maintain their everyday health. Now that it's a bit colder out, it gets crazy dry and hydration is as important as ever. Element has a ton of delicious flavors. I've tried a bunch of them and they just released their new chocolate medley line, which allows you to enjoy Element Hot. You've got chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry to choose from, and they're all designed to be enjoyed hot. They also have a no risk refund policy. If you don't like it, just send it back for a full refund. Now for our special offer for Sweet Spot listeners. If you want to give Element a try and get a free special gift, go to drinkelement.com forward slash sweet spot. Once again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash sweet spot. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire. So it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, the the more to speak simply, which I love to do, it's it coaching is communication, really, and it's it's getting people to buy in and change their habits, and that happens through good communication. It's and that's hard to do. And that's one of the reasons you'll never hear me talking about the golf swing because all this all the stuff you guys are discussing, I get all of like the numbers and stuff, but I haven't spent any time working with golfers in that context. And I'm more humble to it than ever because of what you said, Mark. Like you see that path that's out to N9. It's like, well, there's a lot of other things that are connected to that number and you don't want to tinker around unless you understand how they all work together yeah well look i mean i've seen rory McIlroy with a drive over path sitting there at about seven and a half eight but the thing travels <laughs> like it's destined for heaven i will say this and that's where i i was so keen 
And I follow you so closely, John, because there's more to the game. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with Justin Parsons, who's kind of like the, the hot thing on the tour right now, he and Mark Blackburn, where Justin described the golf swing as a car. And he goes, look, some folks have a Ferrari and some folks have a VW. But all folks, if they know how to, can get around the golf course with a decent score, even if you're in the VW. I have an 82 Accord. <laughs> well, my car is on a jack outside you. That's about where my golf game is. <laughs> it's, and it's so true. You know, It's just understanding yourself and who you are and, and almost embracing that in a way and making the best score you can. And what work you're doing, working around what you're capable of doing as opposed to saying, well, here's the data. Now I'm going to go from my inside-out nine path to having a two left just because I want to hit a fade. That's unlikely to happen. It will, but it certainly won't happen under pressure, I wouldn't think. So what are your thoughts on like the modern teaching on tour? You're around these guys every week. You're interviewing them. You're seeing them on the practice range. You're seeing it's a circus, right? It's like a traveling. To me, when I was there for one week, I'm like, this is a traveling circus. And there's all these people around these players. And obviously, it's different than what it was 30, 40 years ago. You didn't have a whole team of five. You know, your psychologist is there and your swing instructor, your short game, your staff person. So what's your observation? Do you... We we spoke to Frank Noblo about this, your your coworker, because right. he's been through it too. He played and, and now he comments. Do you think they need all these people or do you think they could do it more simply? Not to put you on the spot, but you can answer that however you want. Well, apparently they do need them because they're paying <laughs> said folks. And if they feel like they're important, yeah. then look, it is what it is nowadays. And these players, as competitive as what the arena is, are just looking for a separator or an edge. And if that's bringing you your edge, well, then you've got to exploit that thing because there's a lot of riches and a lot of good stuff on the end of uh, end of limited golf shots. So do I think there's overkill? Certainly, I do. Do I feel like perhaps players are maybe not problem solvers as much as what they used to be? Yeah, certainly. But I'll tell you this, the virtuosos, the real good ones, they don't need as much hand-holding as what a lot of the others do. They know who they are. They know the shots they can hit. They know how to self-correct and self-diagnose, and they're intimately aware of their tendencies, and they know what they're able to do under pressure. And, and you'll see those people. You'll see the guys in the range with a few folks around them, and then you'll see the guys in the range with less. And you'll see the instructors that are doing a whole lot of talking and touching and feeling and stuff, and then you'll see the instructors that are just standing there having a little conversation. And that's when, to me, where you can see the differences between it all. So, yeah, it, it does stand out to see, like, which player has complete command of what they're trying to do and which player doesn't. Bearing in mind, we play a mercurial game and it's there again and then not there again. And then you see the instructors are really in, in control. And you see the instructors that are clutching for straws a little bit, I think is how I would say <laughs> I was asking that kind of rhetorically as well, because I don't know the answer to it. I mean, even if it was placebo, if you felt like you needed five people around you to make you feel better and more comfortable about yourself, then great. If that makes you make a putt or feel good at coming down the stretch, then it's working. I will say this. When I was on a PGA Tour range with a player, I noticed I would, as the week progressed, I would talk less and less and less. If indeed I made it to the weekend, because ordinarily I'd be out of there by Black Friday, because the work is done prior to the event. But I will say this, if you're warming up with a player and it's a big day ahead, they're on edge. And when they're on edge, you know, your system is heightened because we're human beings. And because the system is heightened, 
maybe they could be just slightly out of time or whatever. There, any little thing could creep in there. Then you miss it one or two, and then your mind starts going rampant. That's when an instructor like a Butch Harmon will step in there and tell Ricky Fowler a joke or share a story about dinner just to sort of settle them down. So having that person there kind of as the comfort blanket, the placebo maybe, is not a bad thing. So Maybe placebo is not the right word, but I think comfort yeah, blanket's better because yeah. placebo indicates that it's not really doing anything, but it is. Well, I can tell you, I've stood there behind a player before and they've been hitting it crappy. And I've said, well, you know, just focus on X, where X was not going to be impactful whatsoever. But it just redirected their int- attention from concern for what might happen to, okay, I'm just really loosening up my body to go and play. I just got to find a shot that I can hit. So oftentimes it's all of the cutting, all of the incisive work is done early in the week. Later in the week, there shouldn't be much of that stuff going on. So let's talk about normal golfers. What's your, you know, when you are teaching, I know you've coached at the high level, college and everything, but you work with quote unquote normal golfers as well. Is that more productive or fulfilling for you? Or how does your philosophy change when, you know, because again, the people at the top of the game, like they've got all the the tools and the skills. It's almost like you're, like you said earlier, you're not trying to make them Mm -hmm. worse, but with the normal golfers, you have a huge upside. Yeah. So how do you work with quote unquote, the normal player? What's your philosophy? Well, the philosophy remains the same because the ball and club interaction is the same. At the highest level of the game, it's just faster. The mechanics for Ferrari probably could fix your car as well. They're just having to do it a whole lot faster on the the F1 race than what they do if you're taking your car to the shop. So I think that's the way I would describe it. I don't teach them any differently. I'm going to try and find your currency, whatever settles with you and whatever helps you to understand what's necessary. So if you're a rank beginner or you're an elite player, I'm going to be the same guy. My understanding of what's required remains the same. I might just communicate it in a different way. I'm always going to try and find what resonates with you. But I would say for teaching the elite guys on tour, it's a whole lot more stressful. It's a whole lot more 24-7. You know, for the amateur golfer, oftentimes it's just, I've got to hit my driver a little straighter. It's not like it's a real overarching thing. So the job, I wouldn't say the job's easier, but you can find, like to your point, the upside with a club golfer is probably a little greater. At the highest level, you're trying to shave strokes. At the club level, you're trying to help them gain strokes. You know, strokes gained is a funny thing because they're saying strokes gained. To me, it's more strokes lost at the highest level, right? For the amateur golfer, you can honestly help them to gain strokes with better course management or better decision making or just some better ball striking or better putting, whatever the case might be. All that stuff you talk about in your book, you know, up at the highest level, you're trying to help them to shave an nth of a stroke here and an nth of a stroke there. And that's all going to add up to one at the end of the week and a few hundred FedEx cup points and a little millions of dollars kind of thing. It is a crazy when you think about it. It's true. Yeah. What's at stake at that level? It's crazy. But you know, for everyone else, they just want to be able to win a few bucks off of their buddies on the Saturday Nassau match. So a lot less pressure. Lose a few less golf balls, straighten out my slice a little bit, you know, yeah, and beat my buddy. <laughs> Do you like getting into you 
you made the distinction between coaching and instruction, which I think is a very important, you know, words get used very differently in golf. But do you have a passion? I know you're you're very well versed at both. You can talk about course management and mindset and everything it takes to play the game, as well as knowing the swing and the technique. Do you have a passion for one side of it over the other when you're working with a player holistically? Or do you have equal passion for the golf swing and then the playing skills? That's a great question. Because I don't. I have no passion for the golf swing whatsoever. (laughs) I love a golf swing. To me, it's art. It's moving art. I have the luxury of getting to see these things close up and break them down and stuff like that. But I'm finding more and more as I age now, and I'm 53 and hanging on, that it's all the holistic stuff because we're human beings. And I'm understanding more and more how emotions play a part in what we do and anxiety and fear of the failure and all this sort of stuff that's going on. And just then with club golfers, the ability to move, you know, because we're not getting worked on by physical trainers and massage therapists all the time. Yet we're going to go and try and find our best on the weekend. And so there's all these other things at play. So I find with a club golfer, you can help them with their swing stuff, but they're a victim of their deficiencies. And you've got to cobble something around what they're able to do. With the elite golfer on the tour, they're doing everything in their power to address these things and open themselves up to a new amount or level of movement. So I couldn't tell you one or the other. Golf swing is sexy as hell to me, and I love to look into how they work. <laughs> but by the same token, I understand you're a human being, and all of that stuff has a real role in how your golf swing is able to move under pressure. It's nice to hear that because I, I think as we move forward in the teaching industry in general, I think more coaches are aspiring to have both of those skills. And it's hard to, that's why I started doing what I was doing because when we grew up, it was just golf swing, right? Like you went to see someone and like, we're just going to talk about your golf swing and that's it. And then all the other stuff you kind of had to earn through the failure that golf gives you all the time. Experience, right? No, it's called experience. Experience, right? (laughs) Yes, experience is the word. But it's nice to get, both when you can. And that's hard to do because there's always, sometimes there's an argument where you say like, I've seen this on Twitter. It's like, well, does someone have to play at a certain level to teach the golf swing? And I would say no. My answer is like, if you're teaching the golf swing, I don't necessarily think you need to be a scratch level player or whatever. That is a specific skill set. But the rest of it, the playing skills, I'm like, yeah, I think you need to have some experience playing the game. Because again, the experience necessary to gain that information is hard to get. But when you can do both, and I think that's when like everything that the path to getting better becomes faster and faster for the player who seeks this info. You know what, with that observation made, I want to remind your fans and the listeners to this, that you people are listening to two of the brightest, wisest minds in the game, Adam (laughs) Young and John In my basement. No, 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 seriously, because you are so right. You know, this is such a beautiful game, and it's been so great to me, and, you know, we love it. It'll drive us freaking batty. I mean, it'll make you crazy, but you'll still come back for more punishment, you know? And so there's so much to it, and we do all these things with the desire for better. It's not like people are, you know, trying something to get worse, right? So there's just so much at play here, and if people can adopt that sort of a mindset, like you say, I feel like you're almost getting yourself on the front foot for better golf. And that is the beauty of it. Like if you're just going for golf swing lessons all the time, I'm going to tell you, well, look, this is your ceiling. But if you're looking at this from saying, well, my golf swing is my vehicle, 
and I'm going to get that thing functional. And then I'm going to find ways to, you know, improve here and improve there and just pick from different trees, if you will, on your way to success. You're probably going to raise your ceiling a little bit. That's the fascinating part to me. How do you feel instruction has evolved over the course of the years? What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? I know that we're both led better guys, mm-hmm. especially when we're learning. You have to go through this, but you know we have those eleven P's, eleven positions. Yeah. So setup, so yeah, you know, it goes through the entire swing. You have to talk about you know the positions and every single body part at each position. And it gives us a great understanding of the golf swing. I think we've evolved more towards the idea of matchups now. And I think you have to go through that evolution as an instructor, right? You have to understand models first, maybe an 11 links model or a ballard model or a stack and tilt model. And then you have to progress to, okay, this is how these all, these all fit together. These are the pieces that you could take. These are the pieces that match. And like you're alluding to earlier, when you have a, an average player in front of you, sometimes they're not going to make that model swing and you have to piece something together with what they can do with their body. I mean, maybe you can talk to that or other things that you've seen evolve in golf instruction over the years. You said it so right. The move to matchups has been necessary because, you know, I was, when I was teaching, when I got into it, I was a part of the Sony Handicam Brigade. Remember the Sony Handicam with the little cassettes, right? I was that guy. And if you were lucky enough, you had a couple swings of Ernie else and maybe if you were really lucky you had a swing or two of Tigers from front and down the line and you just compare people to them and go well look this is what Tiger does so you should do the same thing <laughs> swing by numbers yeah exactly so yeah that's trying to make someone someone else but then I was always fascinated by the outliers and I had a moment just a personal aside where I was working with a golfer at the Open Championship and this golf is doing pretty nicely but then Furyk comes and hits balls right next door and I remember the club, his club guy looking at me going, what would you tell Furek if he asked you for advice? And I'd be like, I vomited some BS to him. You know, I'm sure I gave him some articulate sounding answer with, with was word salad, but I really didn't know. And that was like my, my turning point in my career to begin to understand, okay, how do things really work? Was that pre-John Jacobs? Well, I, I knew John Jacobs, but again, I had the camera. And I was super in love with certain golf swings, you know. And Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, okay. So you, so you know what I'm saying. But I would say the biggest change over all the years is the freaking big words that I'm hearing when I go to golf teachers. I'm hearing stuff like dorsiflexion and this and this and that. I'm like, what's wrong with a cupped wrist? Do you have to tell me that you're in right shoulder flexion? And I'm like, golly, please. Golf teaching is about communication. And I remember sitting in a science or a math class going, what the hell's going on? Just because of all the words and the equations and stuff. You know, communicate with people that's going to resonate with them. And I can guarantee you, if you guys polled club golfers and you asked them what an external right shoulder position meant, they probably wouldn't know that. I definitely don't know. Yeah, exactly. So, so I would say the biggest change, and I'm sure you've seen it, is just the way things are now named. I will say this. I spoke with you know, Lynn Blake, who's a fantastic instructor, like a real Homer Kelly disciple, I actually learned from him. And he said when Kelly wrote The Golf Machine, he came up with all these things because he had to find a way to describe these things. But he goes, when you took a lesson with Homer Kelly, it was the simplest sounding thing in the world. But if you read The Golf Machine, <laughs> you're going to give up after a little while if you, unless you really know your stuff and you know that you don't read the book chronologically, that everything pieces together like a puzzle. 
But I feel like the use of all of these scientific terms over recent times is, in my opinion, a little too much. Now, if you grew up with it, by all means, if you understand the stuff, great. But remember this, folks, for what it's worth. If you want to improve, make sure you understand yourself and you understand what you're trying to do. And if you're unsure, don't be afraid to ask the teacher why. Or if you don't get what the teacher's trying to say, say, dude, what do you mean? I'm the guy with my hands on the rubber end of the club, and I'm going to go and hit this golf ball with this club, and you don't get to talk to me while I'm doing it. So please help me to understand what I'm doing. It's a big word sort of thing for me. Yeah, I'm always trying to look at their facial expressions in a lesson to see. I'm just looking in their eyes when I say a word, even if it's something so simple to me, like low point. I'll look in their eyes and I'll ask them, do you know what low point means? And, and even then I'll explain it to them with a, a little pool noodle uh, and just oh. to make sure they've really got it. But yeah, you've got to be really attentive to them. And that's, I do a lot of online instruction and that's certainly the part that you're missing. I'll be honest, it, it's very hard to communicate because, you know, I'll sometimes talk about lead wrist flexion or something like that and i'll say to them it's just like pointing your knuckles towards you you know, this area yeah, that's why you're so good but i'll use both terminologies just in case because if i say to them pointing your knuckles here sometimes they might misinterpret that so i'll also throw in the lead wrist flexion as well maybe that's i'm guilty of giving too much information but i'm just covering my back with that that's stuff the thing remember you are trying to help the learner to improve so you've got to communicate in a way that they get it, that they have that aha moment. That's why you're one of the best. The key is the communication in the end of it. Amen. Mark, we were texting before you came on, and I said to you, one of the things I would love to discuss with you are your stories. Like I've, Every time I've always been on your show or we've stopped recording, like you've always thrown like little stories at me. <laughs> and you've had a lot of stuff happen to you in your career, and you've witnessed a lot of things. Let's do a little like quick story time. Like what are your some of your like top memories or just things you've encountered, whether it was in the pro game or whatever, where you're like, wow, what an amazing thing that was. Well, I guess I need to start with my brother winning the Masters, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't want to lead you there, but I'm pretty sure, you know, being at Trevor's side the week of the Masters when he slipped on the green jacket would be up there. <laughs> well, I remember arriving at the golf course on a Sunday morning and it was gloomy, it was windy, and I walked onto the golf course and those tall loblolly pines were waving back and forth in the wind and I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be hard. And it was a difficult day and he was paired with Brant Snedeker in the final two, in the final group. And Trevor bogeyed the last after blasting a tee shot way off to the right. And then Brant made eagle in the second and all of a sudden they were tired because Trevor had a two-stroke lead coming in. And he made a gritty sort of a – made a par on three and made a gritty save through the back. But he hit a tee shot through the long left on four. And when he hit that shot, I said to my dad, I'm like, okay, he's okay. Because when Trevor is a little off, he gets out in front of them and the face is late and he brushes balls off to the right. And when he squared this thing up and it went through the wind long and left, I said to my dad, okay, we're, we're okay now. And he got up and down, made four, and then – accelerated some and he built a lead and all of a sudden he bogeys eight with a three putt and I'm like holy cow really <laughs> but then he got it up and down from the left bunker on the ninth I mean impossible and he made four and so this was good and then he passed 10 and there's a weight and Paul Casey just hit it in the water on 11 Trevor was had a I can't remember what the lead was but 
they were sitting there on the back of 11T, and Tiger was making a run. And Trevor was sitting on that wooden bench there, and he just was looking down at his yardage book. And I'd walked all the way back to the tee, and I'm standing on the rope line just watching him. We hear this massive roar from down where 13 green is. And I'm like, it's Tiger. He's done something, right? And I am all the crowd's like, Tiger made eagle, Tiger made eagle. No one knew. They just, this has sounded like a Tiger Woods eagle roar. My brother, who was looking in his yardage book, didn't even look up. He did not even look up. He just stayed like this. Then word filters through there. Tiger had actually made that putt for a par, I think it was, from like 40 feet. So anyway, Trevor hits it down 11, hits it to the right of the green, chips it to the fringe, and then makes 15 feet for par. I'm like, yes, this was a miraculous fall. It was playing so hard. So now the lead extends. So he gets there on 12, hits it straight over the back of the green in the bushes, chips it like five feet in front of him, gets it out there into the fringe of the fairway grass behind the green, chips it there to about five feet and holds his curling downhill for four. And that was big. Then he stuffs the wedge there on 13, makes birdie, pars 14. And now he's got, I think it was like maybe a three or four stroke lead. And we're going down 15, and a few of my friends, my friends were now college golfers then who were there for the final round, they catch me on 15. And they're like all congratulating me, going, yeah, Trevor's going to win the Masters. He's got like a four-stroke lead. Not yet. Not yet. And I remember saying to them, just get the ball on 15 green because it was windy. The greens were firm and glassy, and that thing's like an upside-down saucer. And it just was disaster waiting to happen. And he hits a crooked tee shot wedges it out there and the next thing I'm standing beside those pine trees you know on the left side of the fairway and he's 40 yards from me in the fairway with this tilted lie flag where it normally is and all I see is shiny short of this flag going oh golly anything was spinning this thing's back in the water and I'm like if he hits us on the green we're good and he hits the prettiest little wedge through the wind like mid trajectory land spins in there uh, 20 feet makes five and I'm like right this is done He's one. He's like, how, how many head? He gets up there on 16T, back left flag, hits the ball straight into the middle of the water on 16 there. And I'm like, are you serious? And he made <laughs> double bogey. And I remember him walking off the green, and the patrons got up and gave him a standing ovation. Now, he didn't know what the score was, but he glanced up and he just saw that, you know, he was still ahead. But I think the fact that here's a guy who just made double on a very, very hard day that he would walk off that green there and have the patrons get up and give him like a standing ovation was super cool. So I'm like, ah, this is sweet. So he smashes one down 17 fairway, which is such a hard tee shot. He stands one up into the wind and it gets in the front bunker, but it's an unreal bunker shot and makes like four feet for par. And so now it's iced basically. So I walk up the left side of the fairway and we walk around, we're waiting for him on the last behind the green there. And he hits probably his best tee shot of the week in the middle of the fairway. It's the iron shot on the green, two putts for par. <laughs> so he comes off and he does all the stuff and it's incredible. And then his caddy, Neil, comes up to me and he goes, that tee shot on 18? I'm like, what? He goes, he hit it into a divot that was about this deep. Oh, God. So Trevor hit the ball in the middle of 18 fairway into the middle of a divot. And Neil was forecatting because the caddies do, right? They walk from 17 left and the players go to the right. And Neil said when he got up there and he saw this ball, he's like, are you serious? And he actually put the bag down. And when Trevor was walking up the fairway, thinking, no, okay, I'll put the tee shot in the fairway, Neil walked him and said, dude, we've got one more job to do. And again, Trevor <laughs> got there and react. So look down the line, 
picked the club and hit this prettiest eight iron right into the middle of the green. And I was like, for me, it just rode home how golf is golf. Like he's at the best tee shot of the week and he has to play the second shot from a divot on the 72nd hole of the Masters. You couldn't imagine this stuff. That whole experience was almost otherworldly. It's hard to believe. I mean, we were two brothers that used to watch this tournament on TV. Now he's won it and I call the thing on and so does he. So it's it's all sort of weird. I think it's so cool you two get to, you know, you work together on CBS now and you're, you're covering the events together. It's amazing to watch and hear. <laughs> if you get me talking about it long enough, I'll probably cry. So I'll probably stop you momentarily. <laughs> but it was, it was nuts to watch him win it and to just watch the battle that it was and the emotions that people go through. It reminds me of a story of my mom. Look, my dad is the typical father who watches golf. He walks like one shot ahead to where the ball is, and he's always out in front, right? When my mom just walks along and she watches, and she's just watching her son and watching others. She's got favorites too. Like she, she watches golf 24-7 now on TV. She tells me she's looking for me. So when the camera pans wide, she wants to see if she can see me in the fairway somewhere. But anyway, so Trevor is in one or other event. I think it was South Africa. And he's in the final group, and he had the lead. And it was nip and tuck. And then the guy who was competing with basically gets the ball in the water or something. And I look at my mom because I was walking next to her and I'm like, this is good news for us. And I'll never forget because now I'm 30 or 35, whatever I'm. She grabs me by my left ear and she's shorter than me. She pulls me by my ear down to her like this. And she goes, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean, mom? She goes, that boy has a mother who wants to throw up in a bush right now. <laughs> and she is <laughs> and she is so right because now I'm a golfing parent. And I'm like, mom, you were right. Because living the stuff from the rope line, you know, husbands, wives, family members, moms, dads, whatever, kids, it's exhilarating, but it's a roller coaster of biblical proportions. And it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, I can't imagine, especially, you know, at, at the Masters when, when he obviously had the opportunity to win it, like the secondhand fear and anxiety, <laughs> like watching every move. He's sitting there staring at his yardage book, looking calm as a cucumber. <laughs> it's crazy too. Like, you know, on my podcast, I had Hell Sutton on, who I'm fascinated by him. I'm absolutely fascinated by his mind. And so I, I had him on and he was, he's just so candid and so forthright. And he was pretty candid about what media write about players and how players get themselves too wrapped up in what other people think. But it's just so easy because I look back at Trevor's win and I'm like, you know what? Let's say he doesn't make the save from behind 12 green. Let's say he makes double there and doesn't win. Then he's a statistic. He's just another guy who finished second to Tiger Woods. But he happened to. And it happened at the right time. So there's all these things. I mean, you can tell me, I get into knockdown, drag out arguments with colleagues of mine on the First Cut podcast, where they're saying, oh, well, for so-and-so to win, he's got to just improve his strokes game driving. I'm like, come on, man. You've never watched a real golf <laughs> tournament ever because there's so much that goes on. And, you know, just one crooked bounce, one ball in a divot. You might have hit the best. Yeah, well, even, it's, it's stupid. Tiger has said it many times that how much luck is involved in, in winning. Like you have to get a little lucky sometimes and hopefully your opponent does something that you needed them to do or your ball took the bounce that you needed it to. It's a wild game. When you were telling that story about 
you know, your brother at the Masters and going through those holes. I went there for the first time last year. And everyone always talks about, oh, the course looks different in person because it's much hillier than it appears on TV. And of course, that that's what I noticed. But when you said that thing about 15 at the wedge shot, like when I saw 15 in person for the first time, that green complex, I'm like, this looks like the hardest <laughs> shot ever. Mm-hmm. Even whether it's a second shot coming in or your wedge, because there looks like there's nowhere to land it in person. When those greens get firm, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible. And then- then your typical fan, look, gotta love them, but they're like, oh, they'll just make eagle on fifteen. I'm like, Gee, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, everyone thinks like fifteen's like an eagle hole, but like when you see in your person, I'm like, I would be very happy to walk out with a five here and just call it a, a day. A lot of players that way inclined. I mean, look, it's iconic. You know, you have the Jack Nicholas eagle there, and you have all these moments that have happened on that green. But all these moments are probably four or five guys that have made eagle en route to their victory. The rest of them has been riddled with disaster on 15 kind of thing. How many guys have bounced the ball through the back of the green, sometimes in the water on 16? If not, then they struggle to get the ball on the green. And the next thing, they're making five or some soft bogey. So it's an incredible event. And like I say, golf is crazy because for one different role of a ball, Trevor might not have the green jacket, which is obviously a life changer. But he's got Mm, it. He does. (laughs) Obviously, you guys are very happy with how life has turned out. I'm sure you would not change much but if you could go back and change maybe you know even from your perspective from trevor's perspective are there any things that you wish you'd done differently along your journey yes i wish that when i was traveling on the european tour i would have gotten out and went and seen some of the places that i went to after hours because golf was a job and golf was to the course to the hotel to the restaurant to the course and I didn't get to experience places like Munich and all these beautiful cities that are just loaded with history and culture and stuff. And so, yeah, if, if I got it to do over again, I would try and experience the places that golf has taken me a whole lot more because all I've experienced really are the, the golf courses. Another topic I wanted to talk to you about, if we have a little bit more of your time, we had Mackenzie Hughes on recently and Mac talked a little bit about towards the end of the episode, his thoughts on where the pro game is going in the PGA Tour. And you're obviously close to the tour. You're about to start the 2024 season. I don't know when this episode will be released, but today is December 14th, and there's a lot changing very quickly. I'm not asking you to make a stand on anything, but like you're so, you've been so close to the game for so long. Like, What is your take on where pro golf is right now? What do you think is like a best case scenario with everything that's happening? Where will it hopefully go? Well, I feel like... Mackenzie hit the nail on the head. He's a very wise young man in his description of where the professional game is. I don't want to say it's kind of the nature of the beast, but with the influx of money, it's brought more influx of money. And so I think perspectives get a little warped. That's sort of my assessment of it. You know, if you get down to the nitty gritty of it, I I think at the root of the thing, it's, it's sort of biblical. You know, the love of money is kind of the root of all evil. Now, I'm not begrudging people making hundreds of millions of dollars. That's, you know, you've been blessed with a talent, monetize the thing. But I do feel like there's got to be a tipping point at some stage. But I'll also say in the same breath then that the toothpaste is out of the tube. So I don't know where the end point is. If I did, then I'd probably have a more important job. So right now, all I can do is just do my job as well as possible. So I go there and I, you know, do my research and I do my preparation and I go and color shots as eloquently and as incisively and insightfully as I possibly can. As far as where it's going, 
I also don't know. I mean, there's going to have to be a resolution, whether that's a merger or whether it's, I don't know. I try to be honest with you guys, not to think out ahead too much. I just try and be right where my feet are. Because if I had to think about it too much, then the next thing I'm going to be worrying about not having a job. And, you know, that then the next thing, all of those things we've been talking about start running rampant in me and I don't do my job properly. So I'll just live in hope that everything's going to figure its way out like it should. I do know that the PGA Tour in as much as what social media is ripping on the leadership all of the time. I get to work intimately with a number of them when I work for PGA Tour Live. They wouldn't be making these moves at headquarters that they are in terms of broadcasting and stuff if they were fearful of the future. Karma heads, I'm sure, will prevail, and I'm sure the right decisions will be made. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to go and call golf, God willing, and I'm going to do it as well as I can. And you do a great job of it. Yeah, I mean, as a fan, I said this to Mac when he was saying, it's a bummer as a fan because mm. you want to watch the best play against each other. And I would hope, I know there's a lot of animosity between Liv and the PJ Tour or whatever. I would love to see some type of like team format where they're, can you imagine <laughs> like the ratings? It would going head to head, something like that. That would be awesome. Be a, like, let's play this yeah, up a little bit. It'd be a ratings bit. buster. Look, you know, the guy's going to live. If I was advising them, if some guy comes and offers you, well, how many, what's that, eight, nine figures, whatever it is, hundreds of millions of dollars, you'd be a numbskull not to at least consider it. <laughs> Yeah, Max's point was that John Rahm isn't worth that amount of money. Like Shoei Otani, you can make the case is worth seven hundred million, but golf in comparison to like a baseball, it's a niche sport in comparison. So he's not technically worth that money. So it's kind of like this broken marketplace, as he put it. But it is. But you know, you talk about Otani. I mean, his salary over seven years or whatever it is is more than the total budget of certain teams in the league and that makes you wonder yeah, i mean more than I mean, the A's. <laughs> is, is this guy really that i mean how many home runs does he have to hit to justify that well he also pitches too mark okay well i know there's the jersey sales and all these things in here but it, but it is the marketplace is a little broken and that was sort of my first observation of the whole thing but it is what it is right now and we're just going to make the most of it as you prepare week to week like as a broadcaster so you do PGA Tour Live, you do CBS, you're usually on the course with the players or in the booth. What are some of the things that we should know? We asked this to Frank Novello because I think also a lot of people love to rail on the broadcasting teams. It's become a sport. It's become sport on uh-huh. Twitter. And I, to be honest, I've partaken myself at times, not at CBS though. I've never said anything bad about <laughs> CBS. Uh, it's the other one. What should we know about how hard it is to call golf? Because it is it is a strange sport where there's like so many balls in the air, like there's not one playing field where, where the action's concentrated. What would you want people to know about what's difficult or interesting about your job that they don't know about? Well, I can comment on my job. I will say Frank and Ian and Trevor and Jim, you know, the guys inside of the booth do a tremendous job because because there's so many balls in the air, you know, shots have to be recorded. And I find it funny then the social media will start critiquing the fact well we're seeing so many recorded shots i'm like well if if they weren't recorded you wouldn't see them and then you'd be moaning anyway tell us a different way we're all ears so they do a fantastic job a recorded shot typically is seven seconds you'll know if you're watching a live shot and the live group typically with cbs Dottie gets the final group it's either the leader or the final group so i'm in a penultimate group typically if i have the leader you'll hear me if you hear me talk a bit more, I have a live shot. But if you see, if they cut to a shot and the player is over the ball, it's recorded. 
If you're seeing a player walk around, bumming around with a caddy, that's a live shot. That's in real time there. So my colleagues have a wonderful capability of setting up the shot, because remember, they're seven seconds, setting up the shot and getting it down to the on-course announcer in time for us to say something that's going to add to what you're seeing, that what you can't read in a graphic or see on your monitor. I hate it when it grinds my gears as an on-course announcer when the announcer will tell you where the ball's going and you're watching the shot tracer tell you exactly the same thing. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, my job is to tell you, yeah, bite it down. Don't tell me it's left. I can see it's left. Tell me it's climbed fast or something. Just color that. So they do a wonderful job of getting it to us in time for us to, in two seconds, say, terrible lie or just something to kind of color the shot a bit more. So if the player doesn't hit it that well, you're like, oh, that guy sucks. You know, because there's extenuating circumstances. Like, let's say Trevor's tee shot in the middle of 18 fairway at Augusta National. Yeah, they would have been live, so there would have been more time. But if that was recorded, Jim would have said his thing. To me, Jim, the ball's in a divot, whatever it is. He hits it out there, and I'd be like, oh, he made tremendous contact. And then Trevor or Feldo, whoever picks, has the pickup. Like, one of my favorite calls ever was a Jim's, I think, I don't know if it's his favorite or second favorite place, but it was at Pebble Beach. And it was, I had Daniel Berger, who had the lead. And he hits it in the fairway there, and he's got the lead. Just to the left of that tree, you know, the, the cypress tree in the fairway, I think it is. Ocean down the left, wind off the left-hand side. And they come to him, and the ball's above his feet, just a touch. And Jim sets it up, mixes to the left or whatever. And then I'm like, yeah, and add to that the ball's above his feet. And so he hits it, and this thing comes out, like, perfectly. And Nick says, wow, what a wonderful strike. And I'm like, that was majestic. That's cutting in there perfectly. He landed on the green and he made three. But just the interplay between the group of us like that in 15 seconds was just like, you know, it was the sweet spot. There was no talking over anyone. So I would say in quick hits, like when you see there, you hear how good those people are because we don't talk over each other. We also don't talk at the wrong time. You'll never hear people talking over crowd cheering unless it's been miraculous saying just the right thing at the right time very quickly and making it informational is challenging. And I feel like my colleagues do a wonderful job of that. In recent memory, what are some of like the holy crap moments <laughs> where you've been around a group and someone's hit a shot and you're like, wow, that really stood out to me. And I know you've seen a lot of great shots over the years. Anything come to mind? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I guess because it's current. I was on the call in the playoff at the RBC Canadian Open, and I had Nick Taylor. Oh, and when Nick that, Taylor. That 73-foot eagle putt, or 72-foot Yeah, that was – I watched that on TV. Everything about it was perfect. I mean, it was raining. The crowds were out there en masse. I mean, it felt like the whole of Toronto showed up. You know, he's hit this incredible shot. First off, the playoff went for so long, and, you know, he made that incredible downhiller from right to left to get into the playoff. And when I talked to yep. him afterwards, I'm like, you know, people talk about the final putt. I'm like, that putt to get in was the best one, and he actually agreed. But then, you know, he gets it on the green there after an incredible shot from in the rough. He tumbles this fairway medal up there, and I'd set it up. Because they came there and someone said, oh, you know, he's in good shape. He's just off the fairway. And I'm like, no, that ball had nestled down. And I said, it's almost, it looks like it could be in a plug mark. And so Trevor's like, well, you can't predict the flight. And I'm like, yeah, I would think this is going to come out tumbling. And he hit this thing 
and I must, you know, to myself, I was like Nostradamus because the ball came out sort of knuckling, hit short and ran up the fairway onto the green. Yeah, the shot tracer, I remember, looked like he topped it almost. It came out with topspin because the ball was down in the in this lie so badly. And then he gets there and they set it up. I might have just said, look, big sweeper from left to right, uphill and then downhill or something. But he hits this thing and my on-course guy, I've got two, I've got Eric. His nickname's Gus. He carries my monitor for him for me. And then Craig, who's my spotter, he gets yardages and stuff. We're standing right next to each other, and the crowd's just on mass around us. And he hits this putt, and I look at this. I'm like, that looks good. And Gus, I'll never forget him. He goes, it's going in. And it goes in the hole, and people just go bananas. I mean, we had folks hitting us on our backs and stuff. The fans were jumping. All, it was unreal. And then Adam, it gets and then Adam got <laughs> Absolutely smoked by the security uh, guard. And then I remember Craig turning around and Craig standing there on the edge of the green and he just goes like this. He raises his arms in the air going, that's the greatest thing I've ever freaking seen. So it, I mean, it was <laughs> really, really cool. I mean, I've seen a lot of stuff, but but that in Canada, it'll go down. We always have at the end of the year, I take our on-course people out to dinner to say thank you. And we did it there in Memphis. We were sitting there, so I said to them, okay, I need you to give me your top five moments of the year. And to a man, all of us settled on Nick Taylor's eagle putt on the last. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And our, our listeners will know the addendum to that story. You won't know this, but Mackenzie told us that when he found out he was watching the leaderboard and he had missed the cut that week, and he's like, oh, I got to drive to the course. Okay. So he was driving from his mother's house to the course to watch Nick, and both of his sons puked all over the car. <laughs> <laughs> said that so he he was not he was not there to be with Nick because of what parenthood does to us. <laughs> this is one of my things I'll take to my grave. Every golf shot, every golf shot will make somebody happy and it'll make somebody sad. And so obviously Nick was very happy. Adam Hadwin, maybe not so much after he got tackled. <laughs> um, and then of course Mackenzie and his his picking kids shame. Uh, that's yeah. The tale of three Canadians. Exactly. <laughs> what else comes to mind? Anything else recently that you're like, I mean, that was a that was a huge moment. Or even in like the last few years where you talk about Rory's drives, but like when you are around these guys every week, do you kind of get jaded to their talent or there's just certain things you see where you're like, whoa, that is something that because some people will say like, again, and maybe the technology thing, they say like, well, I don't think pro golfers are as skilled as they used to be because of the technology. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't agree with that. But I'm just wondering your take on like some of the shots you're seeing and you're like, that was really hard and, and was incredible to pull off. These are special athletes. I mean, I'll quickly list a few of them. John Rahm hit a four iron on the ninth hole at Torrey Pines. Old, gloomy, ball above his feet, 245 to the flag. Cold, and he hit this four iron thing, the paint off the flagstick. Like five feet short, nearly went in. And he walked up to me, and he's a big dude, right? <laughs> and I looked at him, I'm like, holy cow, you know? And he laughed, and I'm like, that was pretty good. And he goes, he goes pretty good? <laughs> I remember that. I was there on the call for PGA to Live in Mexico on the final hole. It was the ninth. Tiger Woods, playing alongside Abraham Answer, driven the bunker down the right-hand side. There's this big old, like almost ghost tree in front of him with no leaves. He had like 100 and whatever, 70 yards or so. And I'm looking at this and they come to me. I'm like, oh, golly, he's got the tree in the way. There's the right hole location. The ball was down in the sand, some big lip. I'm like, I'm not so sure. You know, I think this is kind of layered up and wedged on the green. 
Next thing, so then now whoever was in the booth talking about this, and I come in, I'm like, wait a second, guys, because I see this guy go in the bag, and he's not reaching for the wedges. And then I see practice swings that look like he's trying to chop his left pinky toe off. He's swinging so left in this thing. And I'm like, wait a second, Tiger is going to try and carve this around. And he had to slice it like 30 yards with an A time. And that was just to get it to the edge of the green, okay? That's how far left he had to. I remember that. That was wild. Adam, you, I remember you did a post deconstructing that shot, right? Yeah. I've done a blog on that, yeah. <laughs> that really was one of his best shots ever. That was insane. And I remember saying to my producer, so I've said it, and then our analyst picks it up because I'm on the course. I got on the talk back, and I said to my producer, I'm like, move a camera guy in behind Tiger. And NBC, I think, might have taken our feet on that, but we got a camera guy perfectly, almost looking down where he started the ball. And this thing started out left, and he struck it well from the poorish lie. And I just remember saying, well, it's cutting. <laughs> <laughs> or no, maybe cutting or slicing. And the thing carved and hit the edge of the green and spun down the hill and nearly went in. Oh, and Karen Stopples was in the booth, and I remember her going, holy moly. And I was like, yeah, it was one of those things. I mean, it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime type shots that just a handful of golfers could pull off. And look, some try it, but some try it and then pull it out, and that's naturally Tiger. You know what I would love to see? On PGA Tour Live, for the people who are like the real hardcore golf fans and they'll watch like certain groups, and this is an expectation management thing, like when you actually watch those broadcasts and you're seeing every shot for a player who might be shooting like a 75 or a 76, this will never happen, but I'd love to see Let's just go through the highlight reel of the golfers who missed the cut this week, just to educate the rest of you and see what, what's going on. Because, you know, golf broadcasts naturally have to entertain people. And to entertain us, you got to show us the best shots. And I've argued over the years that, yes, it is entertaining, but it's also one of the reasons why a lot of normal golfers have warped expectations of the game. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Live is great for that reason. And you'll start, see guys start early Thursday morning and it's 6.45 a.m. on the East Coast. And they get out there and you can see they look all blurry-eyed and stuff. And Yeah, they just suck. <laughs> first few holes are kind of ragged, but they're just cobbling together a few pars. And then they warm up and make a birdie or two. And then and then I've been out there and it just looks ragged. It looks like nasty. But, you know, they'll find a way to shoot 71 or 70 and keep themselves in it. And then I will say, you know, CBS, we get the weekend and we get the good players. We get to the golf Look, if I get in there early and I get to the golf course Thursday afternoon, it's infrequent that I'll, fi I'll have the Thursday afternoon leader in one of our groups on Saturday. In fact, there's many times because Dottie knows she has the final group. I sort of know I have the penultimate group, but things are likely to change. And more often than not, I've prepared for the second to last group. And 10 minutes before the show, my producer's in my area. goes, Mark, go and pick up so-and-so. Because golf is just up and down so much. And here's a player who's played great for two rounds. Now it's Saturday and we're closer to the finish line. And the pressure starts ramping up. And someone who's not that used to that sort of stuff, you know, they start wilting a little bit when all the cameras show up there and it's like CBS have arrived kind of thing because it adds a different element to it. So, you know, it's not always sunshine lollipops out there. It's sometimes nasty looking and they're just, they're great at making the best score that they can on the day. Yep. It's a different game, but right for them. I always tell people, just look at the bottom of the leaderboard every week and see some of the score and these are very difficult golf courses obviously but you're going to see 76s 78s 81s sometimes like it's the game is hard for them too and they're not always firing on all cylinders i'm sure you've written about it in one of your books or at least talked about it the dispersion even for the winner 
between high and low scores for the week. Oh, it's a good seven, you know, maybe eight strokes at times, you know, between 72 and 64 or whatever the case might be. So it's not like they all pinpoint on the button all of the time either. It's just that I learned this from Nick Price. He said to me, he goes, I became a major champion when I learned to make my bad day decent. Yep. That is golf in a nutshell, really. Like that's for the 20 handicap too. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It goes back to something you said earlier about, you know, that some of the best players that you've seen have the ability to kind of adjust when they're playing poorly. They don't need the coach around them to guide them through that. They can kind of do it themselves. Mm, so true. That's so, so true. Well, Mark, we're nearing our time here. We always like to have a consistent time with our guests. So what does next year look like for you? You're going to be on the PGA Tour. I can't keep track of you because you're so busy. Are you still, you're not coaching because you were the coach of Columbus State for a long time, right? Yeah, I was. You were, but you're not yes. anymore, right? You're no. not a college coach as well. I couldn't keep up with how many things you were doing at once. <laughs> I st- well, I stepped away from the college coaching a few seasons ago just because of that very point. You know, this golf for the PGA Tour until sort of August, and then I'd come back and I'd be college coach. And that, so I was just, family life was suffering a little bit. We made the decision for that move, and it's been great. So next year for me, it's more of the same CBS of 18 events on the schedule. And I found out from my boss yesterday, maybe the day before, that I'll be doing all 18 of those. So you'll hear oh me my. on CBS. Wow. You know, I'll be do- I did 23 last season. So I'm doing all 18 CBS events. It's going to be cool. We're going to the Scottish Open again. And there's some really good ones. And then I'm doing five or six, maybe, I think, of the PGA Tour Lives, a few of the Florida Swing. And then CBS last year, 2023, we had the playoffs for CBS, all of them. But now with the TV contracts, now they're NBC in 24. And so I'm I'm going to be doing Memphis and the Tour Championship for, for a PGA Tour Live. All told, I think I've got 24 events next year, and then I'll be podcasting. And I'm trying to be like you two guys. There's a book that's slated for publishing later in early 24. So that's in the process of being edited. Can you share the working title or at least the content of the book? What, what's it about? We don't have a title yet, but it's ostensibly the best of On the Mark. And so there's, I don't remember how many chapters there are. They might have been cut by the editor. But each chapter is, which was an episode of the show, it was either voted by popularity, most downloads, or ones that I just thought were incredible to learn from. And I would go through there and we got the transcripts of them and I'd take out certain quotes uh, from the player or the coach or whatever the case might be. And then I'd just elaborate on those some. So it's basically, you know, you're getting a lesson per chapter from one of the bright minds in the world. And I'm just the happy amalgamator of all this stuff. And, you know, hopefully it's well received. Awesome. Well, we'll have to get you back on when it comes out. Yeah. I was going to ask you, but I didn't want to put you on the spot because I know if someone asked me this, my brain would just flood with information. But what are some of your favorite episodes or, you know, some <laughs> obviously not not our episodes that we've done barring <laughs> us, but some of the other episodes that you've learned from instructors? Is there, are there any that have made you go, wow, I never knew that or wow, that's eye-opening information? Well, 1A and 1B were John Sherman and Adam Young. Uh, so I'd say, <laughs> Goes without I'd saying. Say <laughs> Goes, yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously. There was really a lot of good stuff. My recent one with Victor Hovland, I mean, I'm just fascinated by that guy's mind. That jumps to mind, you know, just his approach to the game, how pragmatic he is. 
how he admitted really that as a young player he was immature and he used to chase flags coming down the stretch that maybe he shouldn't have. And then in the attempt to try and make a birdie, he turned it into a short side bogey or something. And now he's like quite prepared to just wait, you know, runs out like he did at the BMW Championship and all of a sudden had a heart streak and win. And so I thought that was pretty insightful. I mentioned Hal Sutton. That one jumps to mind. Webb Simpson made a quip one time that I've almost made like a mantra for people. And Webb's like, because look, Webb was the kind of guy he's talented, but he gets a lot out of his game. And he's won big events. And I'll never forget him saying, he goes, I'm okay with making a mistake. He goes, I have a big problem with making or losing two strokes with that mistake. So he goes, if a mistake is made, I'm trying to make sure that one is the worst that I give up. He goes, I can recover from one. I'm not going to try and, if a mistake's made, I'm not going to get rash and turn that into two strokes, if you will. That jumps out. But I mean, there's so much good stuff. I've, I've had Butch and Led and some great sports psychologists, Bob Rotella, Bob Winters on there. Your guest list is very impressive. Yeah, there's people that have evaded me so far. You know, um, Chris Como, his schedule's so busy, I can't get to him. Well, we're trying whenever we see each other. I think he's a fantastic young instructor. And and so there are folks I'd still like to get. I'd like to get more players. But the thing about the players is some of them don't really understand what they do very well. That's why when I spoke with them, yeah. That is the fascinating thing about me, about players giving advice. Some of them are good at it. And some of them have no idea why they're good and they don't know how to communicate anything. It's, well, that's, it's, it's that's two what, different skills. That's when I've had the players. I probe them to see what they do well. And Colin Morikawa was fantastic. He's very insightful. I mean, if you ever watched the Genesis, the Riviera event from 23, I had his group, the second to last group, and he did our walk and talk. He described the 10th hole at Riviera. And when he was done with us, we went to commercial and I was like, I don't care who else comes after this. This guy was the winner. <laughs> just because he just sees a golf course so well and he's able to describe it. So, I mean, he was good, but there's been a lot of good folks on there. And, and I'm just fortunate to be able to – I listen like a fan. So when they say something, I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And then I'll just mine that a little further. I don't have a set list of questions. I might have a topic I want to try and address. But you never know if you start getting a bright person talking – who am I to try and moderate what they're saying? I may as well just get out the way and let them keep on going. And then people tell me, I interview pretty well. I'm just a fan trying to hear what you have to say for yourself. Well, we highly encourage, we view podcasting as a not a zero-sum game. Everyone can win. So if you like our show and you have not listened to Mark's show, there's a ton of knowledge in there as well. More so from like you get the bigger voices in the games than than we have at times. As I said, the guest list is really impressive. So yeah, everyone check out On The Mark and, and we look forward to the forthcoming book. Where can everyone else find you? I'm on social media at Mark underscore Immelman, the website markimmelman.com. And then I've got a burgeoning YouTube channel. I just search Mark Ooh, Immelman over there. getting into YouTube. Well, I'm trying to be like you youngsters, you know, I'm trying to be cool. <laughs> I do not, We're not do there anything on video. Like YouTube and me, I have no idea what's going on there. So <laughs> I'm an old man in that regard. Well, it's what all the cool kids are doing. So I'm trying to do the same thing as the cool kids. It's what it is. All right. Doing dances on TikToks? No? <laughs> yeah, we'll see Mark's TikToks. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> no, no. My TikToks and stuff are just videos of golf swings that I get from PGA Tour players. That's what that stuff is. <laughs> well, Mark, I'm glad we could finally get you on, find the time for it. Appreciate everything you've done, both of Adam and myself. 
And we look forward to hearing your sweet South African accent as well as your brothers on the PJ Tour broadcast in the upcoming season. Thank you. You guys are the best. Honestly, I don't joke when I say that I'm attracted to bright minds and I'm I'm attracted to people that can take complex subjects and make them appear simple. Because it's not easy, but simple. And you both do a wonderful job of that. And the game is fortunate to have you both, have your respected voices out there. So thank you. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Adam, where can everyone find your stuff? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find your stuff? Check out the four foundations of golf. And thank you all to our listeners. We will see you next time with a new episode.